Welcome to More Than A Few Words, a marketing conversation for business owners. This is your host, Lorraine Ball, and today we're going to talk about who you should be talking to. We're going to explore the topic of who is your ideal client, and I could not think of a better person to have that conversation with than Johnny Cooper. British author, piano player, international racing driver, and business coach, Johnny Cooper is also the founder of johnnyhatesmarketing.com. Since growing a business to eight figures and exiting, Johnny's been supporting coaches and trainers and therapists and consultants who are serious about building their thriving practice, changing the world, and enjoying a life of effortless abundance. He's also the voice behind the legendary Johnny Hates Marketing Facebook group and swears that he really does hate marketing. Well, Johnny, even though you hate marketing, I'm so glad you agreed to be on a marketing podcast. Fantastic. It's so good to be here, Lorraine. Nice to see you again. Absolutely. We had so much fun talking about content last time. I had to have you back. And this time we're going to explore what you need to do before you write content, which is think about your ideal client. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that has to be, doesn't it? One of the pillars of our business, because if we try and appeal to everyone, we'll appeal to no one. Uh, That's a bit of a cliche, but a truism nonetheless. So, you know, one of our first little thought exercises before we put our business together needs to be, who am I dealing with? You know, who do I want to attract? Who is my ideal client? Another way to describe it is, you know, what kind of people would benefit the most from what it is I do? Those are all great questions and I want to dive into them, but can I tap into one of the fears that business owners have whenever I mention an ideal client? Yeah, of course. And that is, oh my God, but but then what if somebody comes along who's not my ideal client? Can I still sell to them? Yeah. What about everybody else? That is the bottom line, isn't it? It's a bit silly, really, isn't it? It's a bit balmy because clearly, you know, this is your business. This is your rules. It's your game. You can decide uh, exactly uh, who you work with at any point in time. So giving yourself permission to work with people who are not exactly on the definition that you've come up with of your ideal client is is absolutely fine. And um, all, all the ideal client thing does, it enables you to, what you might say, you know, put a sign over the shop that says, look, you know, this is my tribe. If you're one of these people, come on down. That, yeah, it doesn't preclude anybody else from coming in. So there's no exclusivity in it. The other thing I think that worries a lot of people, Lorraine, about uh, the ideal client is, you know, do I really want to anchor my future in this direction when I get bored, you know, just working with these people, whoever they might be? Well, the answer to that is it's not permanent. So neither is it exclusive, but it's certainly not permanent. All you're actually doing is saying, look, I'm going to try and build an audience with these people, see what happens. You know, let, let, let's see how it works out. And, you know, if there are some better ideas that emerge at some point in the future, then you can pivot into another client avatar altogether. So, you know, given the idea that it's not permanent and it's not exclusive, that generally takes a bit of the pressure off this decision making. Absolutely. It feels like a, a smaller decision. Let's just try and attract a community of these people and see what happens. I love the idea that I can work with this audience and if after giving it my best shot, it doesn't work or I find I really don't like working with lawyers as much as I thought I would, I can then target a different audience. So 
how do I go about maybe picking that first ideal audience, narrowing my focus, and what mistakes or myths are out there about that? Well, you know, given that the world's a big place, it's it's full of people. If you're online, uh, half of the, the, the world's population is on some social media or other. So you've got access, haven't you, to two billions of people. That's a double-edged sword, of course, because, you know, so has everybody else. Barriers to entry are quite low in terms of, you know, trying to build engagement on social media. So I think what we need to do is this. We need to look at three key parameters to identify an ideal client avatar, as we call it. And I, I call this my three-legged stool because most people understand that, you know, if you take one leg away, it falls over. So we need all three in place. First one has to be that we have to identify a type of person for whom we can solve a big, expensive problem. So someone who's suffering with something that's really important to them, life-changing uh, in a positive or negative way, a challenge that they're suffering with, that we can solve for them. So, you know, there has to be this deep, intense ability on our side to use our tools, our modalities, our knowledge to help people in a completely transformational way. Because if we don't get that, then we'll be attracting people for whom our services are merely optional. And that's very dangerous these days, isn't it? I say these days because it looks like the world's going to some kind of meltdown yet again. Uh, everyone is kind of saying, do I need to spend this money on this thing? And we don't want our services to be seen as optional. We want our services to be seen as essential, life-changing, either in some kind of emergency way or some kind of really, really important way. That's the first thing. The second thing is that our ideal clients need to be visible to us, Lorraine. They need to have some visible identifying markers. It's no use just saying, you know, I help, you know, stressed out middle-aged women who are feeling a bit stuck because, you know, people don't wander around with a badge on saying I'm feeling a bit stuck, do they? So, you know, we need something a bit more practical than that. For example, what works well is if we can identify a career demographic people are mm -hmm. engaged in a certain profession or they're running a business doing some kind of job role which you know can lead to the sort of challenges and issues that we can help them solve so the second thing is they need to be visible let me stop you here because i want to ask a question on the visibility yeah. is it that you're looking for a demographic or as you say some kind of visible characteristic where there is a higher likelihood is that what you're saying so yes yeah that, that that's a really good point lorraine this speaks to a concept that I've framed as uh, assumptive marketing. So we're kind of saying, well, I mean, let, let, let's, let's, let's do a practical example. So let's say you are a stress relief therapist mm -hmm. specializing in, in job-related stress, um, you know, vocational stress. You might say to yourself, well, you know, what kind of jobs are more stressful than others? Um, so you could make a shortlist, couldn't you? Mm -hmm. First responders, for example. You know, people dealing with, you know, horrendous human injuries and conditions and accidents and things like that. Also, you know, in a, in a slightly less life-threatening way, HR professionals are dealing with stress all the time, aren't they? Mm -hmm. If you're a, an HR manager in a, in a corporation, chances are the upper management throw most of the really terrible jobs at you, like, you know, firing people, making people redundant. 
going to industrial tribunals, as they're called in the UK. I don't know what you call them in America, mm-hmm. you know, where people are, are, are fighting and suing the company for unfair dismissal and all that kind of thing. So the HR boss has all that on his or her plate. They're likely to take it home with them, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a kind of never-ending, always-on-call kind of position. So you could say, look, HR professionals are perfectly suited mm-hmm. um, to a business that helps high-stress professionals with job-related uh, anxiety and stress, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And so also, you could do worse, couldn't you, than, than building a community of HR professionals if that's what you do for a living. As you were going down that path, yes, first responders and HR professionals both have stress, but they have very different sources. So now you can yeah. start thinking about one or the other. But I interrupted you because you were ready to jump into that third pillar, and I want to make sure we get yeah. that as well. But to, just to draw a line on what we're talking about, of course, there will be a variety of, in that example, professions that you could you know, uh, accurately describe as, as high stress. You've just got to pick one. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. pick one and see, see how it goes. And again, you know, speaking to what we said earlier about the lack of permanence in your ICA, if it's not working so well, you can pivot into something else, can't you? Um, but the, the, the third leg on our sort of three-legged stool of the ideal client avatar is that you have to be able to afford to pay you. And, you know, we're, we're not in this, I'm certainly not in this, to to train and, and coach my clients uh to, to just build an expensive hobby or some kind of, you know, philanthropic mission. That can be part of your life at some point, but I'm here to help you build a business, you know, turn your, turn your expertise into a business. So what we need to do then is find people who can afford to pay us um, to a large extent, if not universally. And, you know, that, that starts with a question like, who, who are the wealthiest kind of people who benefit from what I do? Who are the wealthiest kind of people who benefit from what I do? And that's, a useful little thought exercise where you can kind of say, well, in those professions we've mentioned, uh, leading HR professionals might be better paid than first responders, you know, nurses and police folks and stuff like that. So may, maybe try that first off, you know, because you'll be able to then deliver more expensive solutions to their big expensive problems. So none of this is, is massively complicated to understand. Uh, it, it, it might seem oversimplistic to say that, you know, all your ideal client needs is a big problem that you can solve. Number two, you know, they need to be visible to you. You've got to be able to find them where they hang out and meet them where they are kind of thing. And thirdly, they need, need to be able to afford to pay you. That That's the essence of everything we do. You know, let's keep it as simple as we can. Don't overcomplicate things. Don't procrastinate too much. Don't paint yourself into a corner with some kind of impossible conundrum. You know, life is easier than most of us make out, isn't it? If you put these simple steps in place and build the foundations well so that you can just uh, beaver away each day and, and grow your business bit by bit. That was fabulous. And really boiling down that whole idea of who your ideal client needs to be or how you find them into three key points is so helpful. Fabulous. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it again. If uh, my audience, if you guys are listening and you would like to know more about this or other things that Johnny is doing, be sure to do two things. Number one, check out his website at johnnyhatesmarketing.com and look for his Facebook group where he will share lots of tips, even though he hates marketing. That's where the magic happens. Johnny (laughs) Hates Marketing Facebook group. Thanks again. My pleasure. 
If you've enjoyed today's conversation, if you'd like to find other resources for your business, be sure to check out digitaltoolbox.club. You'll find white papers, worksheets, webinars, and so much more. This has been another episode of More Than A Few Words. Thanks for listening.